0: So I think if you're in the position to choose where your money is coming from, that's a good position to be in. I think many people, they're happy to take almost, you know, whoever's offering their money. If you have got the choice or if you're thinking about how to optimise this in general, I think it's better to take angel money first.
1: My guest today could have what can be described as a dream job. He got to travel around the world, expose his kids to different cultures and places, which was important to him and his wife. He was in a role that he enjoyed and he was loving the corporate life because he was doing what he thought he was going to do from a kid. Sounds like a dream so far, right? Yet there was something missing. And in the pursuit of what was missing, it led him to spend time in a new country studying and ultimately walking away from that dream job. But the consequence of him walking away meant not only did he have debt hanging around his head, he had to move his family to a new country and he started startup. Now that startup ended up being a billion dollar company, so it sounds like a smart move on his part. However, he chose to walk away from that startup as well. That's something you hear of very much. I want to delve into why he chose to walk away from that. I want to delve into the ups and downs of being a CEO, which he currently is as the U.S. CEO of salary finance, employee financial awareness strategy and solutions provider, which we talk about as well. We also talk about regrets. We talk about so many more things. I'm going to stop talking right now. Let's just get into the episode so we can hear from Dan McLean, who is my guest today. And on today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the pleasure of talking to one of the co-founders of Suffify, the unicorn that's just gone public um, in recent times, actually. She's one of the personal finance companies, I think the largest online lender in the U.S., he is currently the CEO of US Salary Finance. He is board advisor. He's an investor to gets involved in a lot of early stage startup companies. And I'm talking to Mr. Dan McLean. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Shoppy? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And I am I'm doing really well. I've been so looking forward to this conversation because it's it's always very interesting when you hear like those kind of numbers and the achievements of what you've done people think like oh my gosh that's so far out there i can't even imagine reaching those heights and that's why i love having these kind of conversations because it allows us to to delve into your background and how you came up and with that in mind i guess i want to go back to your i guess your finance roots because that's where it all started out for you from economics i think at universities when you went into the world isn't it
0: correct i'm based in Boston in the US now, and I've lived over in the US for, what is it now, about 12 years. But I started life over in England, born in Cambridge, and then grew up in Essex in, in Rockford and went to school there. And like lots of people from that part of the world, my dad commuted to and from the, the city of London every day in the banking arena. And so I think from a young age, I grew up thinking that that was something that I wanted to do. And I was good at school. I was dec- very good at maths and that kind of thing. So I don't know, to me, it's just like, okay, yeah, you're going to go and work for a bank one day. And how do you get that uh, economics? That makes sense. And I enjoyed it. I shouldn't pretend I did not Economics is one of the, the subjects that I really like. So, so yeah, I studied that at school, A-levels, and then at a university, University of Durham. Started my career back in the late 90s at 21 years old in the
1: finance industry. And I do economics too, so I understand. <laughs> <laughs> the economics at university and the, I guess the range of the world that it provided was why I did in the first place. And it's interesting when I look at some of the things that you stepped into when you went into finance, it allowed you to, have to go and live and explore places like China and Singapore. What was that like for you, especially young at universities stepping into those kind of environments?
0: It was great. So I chose when I was about to graduate, I was applying for different places and big interview for different places, mainly big international banks. And I ended up at standard chartered bank where I'd worked for about 12 years, the first 12 years of my career. And one of the reasons I ended up deciding to go there as opposed to other places they could have gone was because of the international footprint that the bank had, still does today, but uh, including at that time. And the fact that the program that I was being admitted on, the kind of graduate trainee program or whatever it was technically called, really encouraged overseas stints as part of your development. So, Within the first three months of of working there, I was sent to Singapore for six weeks for a training course, along with graduate trainees, management trainees from all around the world. A year within the first year, I'd spent three months working in India. So these were opportunities that you know, most people I was in 21, 22 years old, most people don't really get that so early in their career. And along with that, over the next few years, managed to visit probably about 20, 25 countries in the network. So across Africa, Asia, and, and the Middle East. So for me, that was amazing to be able to visit places that you otherwise may not get to and you know, have someone else paying for your hotel and have someone else uh, helping you to get there. Of course, there's work involved, but it, it, it was a great life in my early 20s. I got married to my wife, who's from Colombia, South America. And yeah, we moved as a couple then, pre-kids, we moved to Singapore, when I was about 26 and, and lived there for a couple of years. Really, that got me just appreciating that oh, I'd already appreciated it before, but that was our first experience of living somewhere else for a sustained period of time and, you know, putting down roots. And yeah, I've done more of that eight years since. And, and I've only lived back in the UK for two and a bit years out of the last, what what is it, 18 years. So still love the place, go back a lot, but I've found other places to call home as well.
1: What was that um culture change like for you and you immersed in yourself especially when you went to go and live there with your wife what was that like for you to be able to learn adapt and immerse yourself into that culture so that you could actually not just live there temporarily but actually really plant plant some roots because you were there for a period of time especially with the family
0: it's great i mean so after singapore we came back to the uk for a couple of years and kind of coincidentally both of our kids came while we were in a two and a half year period in london it wasn't necessarily planned that way but they were both born in, uh, in London. And then we moved as a, a very young family to, to China. So my daughter was six weeks old and my son was 18 months old. We we're in areas where there were other expats. It wasn't like we were the only foreigners in town or anything like that. But within my team in China, I was the only non Asian person out of, you know, two, 300 people. So it was, it was quite immersive in that sense and really enjoyable. It's a big place and there are, you know, lots of opportunities out there, but. In many ways, it's a small place in that people have the same kinds of concerns and the same kind of worries, and it isn't that different as you go place to place. So obviously, there's things here and there, cultural differences, but fundamentally, people are pretty similar everywhere you go. That, that's my belief. Did
1: You learn the language in the end, or kind of Mandarin is not easy.
0: It's not easy. <laughs> and, uh, so so the, the short answer to your question is no. The long answer to my <laughs> excuses. You know what we'll need another podcast for I did try, <laughs> I did try lessons uh, but I was doing them before work seven o'clock in the morning. I don't know again I'm, I'm giving you the excuses. I'm boring you already, but it was tough. If I'd thought that we were going to stay there for many, many years, I might have made a bit more of an effort well it, it kind of probably was going to be a three year thing as it ended up being, so again, I'm giving you my excuses. My wife did a much better job than I did and my kids at that young age, picked quite a bit up as well while we were there. So, yeah, that, languages is not is not my forte. Can we have another question, please? <laughs> Trust me,
1: I'm with you, I'm with you on that <laughs> one. As a father, I know I I certainly struggle when my kids were younger. My work involved a lot of travel. And then when I speak to other leaders in particular, where we still have the stereotypical, where women are at home and men are still traveling around, they have this guilt of either traveling with their families or traveling away from their families. And as someone who has done that, what was that thought process like for you into making that decision? Okay. And now I have a family, how are we going to take them with us? How it's going to affect them? What was that like for you?
0: So I think giving, and, and it's different for everybody, but personally speaking for me and on behalf of myself and my wife, we, we were, already from two different countries, two different continents. So one of us was always in a foreign country, if you like. You know, and in the US we're both in a foreign country. There was never an obvious home base for us. And we felt and we continue to feel that exposing our kids to to different experiences is, is a really great thing. And unfortunately they don't really remember much of China because we were there when they were so young. But even If they don't necessarily remember that much, I I do believe that at least some of that's kind of inside them without them necessarily knowing it, just because they've grown up in that environment. And even now, as they're older, they're what are they, 15 and 14 now, going back to the UK to see my family, going back to Colombia to see my wife's family, and then being lucky to go to other places as well, I I think it's a great experience for kids. And I think, I don't know... I can get kind of cliched about it, but I honestly think that once you travel a bit and you've seen the world, you can kind of appreciate, again, coming back to my previous point, that people are generally pretty similar people and, and, you know, there's not really a reason to fear other types of people. And I think this podcast may not be the right place, but, you know, the, the political situation going on in both, I would say, the UK and the US over the last five, six years, a lot of it comes from ignorance and people putting up barriers and putting up reasons to be fearful of other types of people that by and large just don't really exist. And I think being lucky enough to travel gives you that bit of extra awareness and exposure that, hang on, what that person over there is saying may not be completely correct. I've got a bit of knowledge to refute what that person's coming up with. Whereas if I have left my country, maybe I don't know any better. And I think some of the problems we have around us today are somewhat due to to that aspect.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think being able to travel, especially the amount of travel you've had, which is very extensive, opens, opens your eyes to other people, other cultures, other realities. And like you said, you now start to see people as actually, we know that, you know, that they're similar in so many different ways. And you start looking and holding onto those similarities that we have and seeing people for who they really are, not based on any fears or, the biases that tend to come out. So I completely understand that rationale, that viewpoint as well. And um, going into, I guess, one of the things you did when you were in the U.S. was building or co-founding SoFi. How did that come about?
0: I moved to the U.S. in 2010 to go to attend Stanford Business School, which if you're not from that part of the world is one of the top business schools in the U.S. and the world but it's really well known for entrepreneurship. So the reason that I went there as opposed to somewhere else was mainly around that. I had this little itch inside me. At this point, I've worked for Standard Chartered for 11, 12 years, was loving that corporate life. Like we've spoken about, it'd be very good to be to in my family. And I conceivably could still be there today and, and be you know, having a great career. But there was a little bit of me that was like, maybe there's other things out there. And this was an amazing way to go and spend It was a a 12-month program, a full-time 12-month program. It was an amazing way to go and spend 12 months in a new country, the U.S., learn from really amazing people, get to know a different network of people, things that I've never been exposed to. And I was fortunate to be sponsored by Standard Charter by my old bank. So the there was no kind of loose situation here that in one scenario, I was going to go have a great 12 months and then go back to another job in the bank somewhere. Of course, there was a a piece of me that was open to the idea of, or maybe this leads to something else to come back to your question. That's kind of what happened. So sitting at Stanford, it's in the middle of Silicon Valley, just a couple of miles, a few miles from where Apple was born, and Google was born, and Facebook was born, and all these other great companies. And really, that's the powerhouse of the world almost now. So to be immersed in that atmosphere and to have people coming into classes and speaking about their experience of founding a company, I found it very powerful. I think there was a few things. One, it was amazing to just hear firsthand that these people had built a company and sold it or employed thousands of people, whatever their story was. It was very empowering. I think mainly because while they were always smart people and I could see, oh yeah, you've got something about you. I can see why you were successful. It wasn't like they had, you know, two heads or something and they were completely different to me. They still, there was enough of me and then, and, and you know, I say that with uh, humility, it's not that these people creating these companies are super geniuses in any way. Sometimes, well, in most occasions, they're smart, but it's more about, I think, the opportunity they've been given to do something special and being in the right place at the right time, surrounded by the right people, the right kind of support network. And there I was sitting within that network, and I was thinking, well, hang on, maybe I could do that. and. Long story short, a few of us, four of us classmates got together and and through a class, it was kind of like a startup class, come up with a company, which you know gets you a good grade and the rest of it. But we actually took it a bit further. We ended up deciding to make a real business out of it, what became SoFi. And I resigned from the bank who were at that point funding me to be there. I always say that's the most expensive email I've ever sent because that resignation, like, okay, you got to pay them back now for the relatively high expenses that you've been racking up for the last year being over here. So it's a big jump, but the one that I'm glad I did and, and one that I was lucky to have the opportunity to do so.
1: Making that jump, was there any fair doubt, trepidation around you actually cutting that tie with a bank and stepping into this startup world which was brand new to you?
0: Yeah, of, of course, a lot. So this thought process went from about January 2011 till about May 2011. So it's quite a short period of time. I'm graduating in the June. And so at some point around April, May, I was expecting to get back in touch with the bank and say, okay, I'm going to be graduating in a month or two. Maybe I can have a little break afterwards, but you know, where should I be? Where should we be talking about my next job being? So that's in my head. And then we start this, or we have this idea rather for a company that that was so far in January and we're working on it each and every week. And each week that goes by, I get slightly more confident that actually I think this could be a real company and I think it could provide for my family and et cetera, et cetera. But of course there's no guarantees and there were never any guarantees or for a long period of time, there, there were not guarantees that this this would be a success. So it was a huge decision to make to give up what was then a very comfortable career with the added bonus of having to pay back, you know, 100,000 plus dollars in, in tuition. Maybe that was good for me because maybe that really made me think about this was the right thing to do. And once I had made that decision, it was like, okay, you've got to make it a success. Otherwise you're going to be in trouble with no job and, you know, needing to pay this stuff back again. So, <laughs> so I think in hindsight, perhaps that was a good thing. But yeah, looking back, I'm kind of impressed with myself that I had the, the courage to do that. And, but it was a tough decision. And credit to my wife as well for supporting me in, in those decisions because that wasn't simple.
1: I can only imagine. What does it go to What really goes into starting a, a billion-dollar company? And I guess what are some of the lessons you kind of learn the hard way in that creation process?
0: Yeah, look, there's a few things, I, I, and I think these words are based on my experience really with two companies, so far, what we're talking about in salary finance, where I am now. So I'm always slightly cautious to when I'm doing these kinds of things to, to make sure that anyone listening is aware that it's based on a, a very small sample size of two. And, and I think sometimes the problem is the world at large hears a lot of the winners explaining how they were successful but it isn't always that everything that you know somebody did led to something else sometimes just, it, it just kind of happens that way. and there might be twenty other people that did the same thing and didn't have the same outcome. So with that kind of caveat side, there were a few things that i I think fundamentally you need to have a great idea, and in the venture the venture capital kind of funded world that I'm in, and lots of people are in, your idea needs to be and I'm exaggerating a bit. somebody told me this when I was at Stanford, a professor. It needs to be 10 times better than the idea that's in the market now. If it's not 10 times better, and there might be a bit of an exaggeration, but if it's not a lot better than the existing you know, incumbent kind of model, then there are so many obstacles between you getting from where you are today, which is kind of nothing, we're just an idea to achieving that, that if it's only incrementally better than what's out there today, you probably won't get there you know, something will happen that won't get you. So you've got to have a good idea. You've got to have something that enough people can look at and go, yeah, I can see that working. And that's easier said than done. That leads me on to the next point. If you're raising money, we were raising money from venture capitalists to to help fund the business as is the kind of common way in Silicon Valley, but also in in London and, and the UK now as well. Not everybody is going to think that your idea is great and not everybody is going to want to give you money and that's okay. So as long as there are some people, enough people that believe in what you're doing, that's fine. You're going to get many more no's than yeses in general. We did it so far. You know, we went up and down speaking to lots of people with money saying, would you, you know, will you invest in this? And most investors said no, but that's okay because you only need a very small number to give you the money to get you going. And I think having a skin that's thick enough to hear no enough is a big part certainly in this kind of venture world where if you can't take a no if you want everyone to love you and your idea then this probably isn't a thing
1: for you do you cultivate that thick skin of no before you step into the vc entrepreneurship startup world or is it something you just learn as part of the journey
0: i think you have to go in expecting lots of people to say no it doesn't make it easier it sets up a bit of a strange construct, and that every time you speak to somebody new, I guess in your like, if you're playing the percentages, there's a more, there's a higher likelihood that this conversation is going to end up with a no than a yes. So like, you have that at the back of your head. Yeah, at the same time, you have to completely remove that from the equation and go in confident and almost expecting the person to say yes, because otherwise, if you go in showing that you expect it to be a no, then it almost definitely will be a no. So it is a little bit of a strange. Psychology and kind of motivation thing, where you've got to just lift yourself up every day. And and if you've had, you know, the last five people have said no, that can be tough to do. And then for many ideas or many people trying to start companies, the tricky thing I believe is well, where, how many no's are enough, or or rather, how long do you wait till you get that the first yes or enough yeses? And there is no, I don't think there's a mathematical formula for it. But at some point, if everybody's saying no to you. Maybe your idea isn't as good as you think it is. But at the same time, you've got to be persistent because you only need one or two yeses. So it is a bit of a hard thing to kind of toggle between.
1: What's your views on, when I want to say VC funding and angel fund funding? Because with VC funding, there's a lot more, there's a higher expectation and a higher demand and higher stress that can come with it as opposed to angel funding, which was gives so you some money coming in. But you get a... Uh, is slightly less stressful. So I'm just curious with the experiences that you've had and what you're doing right now as well and the world that you operate in, would there be any recommendations that you would give to someone based on your experience?
0: So I think if you're in the position to choose where your money is coming from, that's a good position to be in. I think many people, they're happy to take almost, you know, whoever's offering their money. So th- th- there is that. If you have got the choice or if you're thinking about how to optimize this in general, I think it's better to take angel money first. So from individuals, hopefully influential individuals who can help you get to that next level, sometimes the danger of taking venture VC money too early is that you may then need more money in six months or a year or whenever you need it. And if you haven't made enough progress, those same investors may not come in your next round, your follow on round. And the signal that that sends is bad in that if certainly a big name BC invested six months ago, but doesn't want to invest in your new round or 12 months ago, whatever it was, there's a lot of signaling problems then that you have that, well, there must be something wrong, or maybe there's something wrong. So in some respects, raising that first round from a list of individuals who maybe aren't necessarily known to the broader public or investment community is can just reduce that pressure a little bit and then be more of a natural stepping stone to a seed round and an A round that a a VC or two can be involved in.
1: And after in all that, that time, that effort, that work to build up this company, you chose to walk away, which I found very, very intriguing because a lot of times, a lot of people talk about it. I want to have a company that I can exit and have a unicorn company. And there's that whole reputation that goes in with me to say those things. But you chose to step away from that and step into what you're doing right now. Why? What was behind that decision?
0: It was a very tough one. I think it's. I think I spent about a year making that decision. I, I left Sofi just over six years after starting it. At that point, we were a unicorn company, so so we weren't a public company, but we we had raised money that valued us at, at unicorn status, and I think thinking back, if I had expected an IPO or an exit event to happen within, say, the next 12 months, I probably would have stayed. But partly so you can then say, yeah, I was there at the beginning, I was there at the end, and, and uh, or the whole journey. But for different reasons, it didn't feel like that exit story or the IPO was imminent. So hindsight's a wonderful thing that I, I turned out to be correct in that it took the company 10 years to go public. And I'm very grateful and thankful to the current management team for, for making that happen roughly a year ago, but it was a 10-year process. So when I ended up leaving, had I stayed, it would have been another four years until that kind of natural exit. So I didn't want to be overstaying my welcome. Is not maybe the right expression, but I think for a lot of people, when you start a company, at the beginning, there were four of us and you got to make lots of decisions and there was an obvious lack of bureaucracy within the place, just because there, there has to be. And then it grows and you add more people and you got this kind of team spirit. When I left, we had 1,500 people. It was a very different type of company. And for good reasons, you couldn't just go away and make a decision by yourself. Like You needed committees and you needed approval decisions and, and agreement from other people. So, it, you know, and that's how it should be. But it just was very, it was different to those early years when it's kind of like just have an idea, run with it. And so that was one thing. The company had changed a bit for good reasons, but I just, I I kind of enjoyed the early days. I didn't see that IPO event happening imminently. And honestly, I just felt like taking a little bit of a break and thinking about what the next chapter of my life was going to be. So yeah, it took probably took me a year. Nine months, 12 months to kind of really make that decision. And it it was a tough one. But looking back now, I'm glad I did it. And I think for me, I came out at a good time, at the right
1: time. Yeah, I think some of what I'm also hearing as you're you're sharing is there is a, I want to say there's an emotional and mental toil to creating a a company like this from growing from just four of you to 1,000, 1,500 people. It's a lot. And then I'm sure along the journey, like you said, you still got your family, you still got your kids, you still have to manage that as well. So it can it can take a lot out of you. And I guess knowing when to take a step back is a hard decision, but it's also a really important one, which is why I really want to highlight it because I'm, people struggle with that. Like, but I started this, I want to keep on going, but you can then lead and get down that burnout path that we've seen happen so many times, especially in the for entrepreneurs.
0: And I should say, by that point, we had. And I use we and they interchangeably with SoFi now. So I'm sure I've said both of them. We, SoFi had a really competent senior management team, you know, great people. Me jumping off at that point, it wasn't like the company's future was being in danger or anything. You know, we'd hired really amazing people. Two of the four co founders had already left before I left. So, if, you know, I wasn't the first. I, I don't think that factored into my decision. You got to time it right for you. And for me, I think I made the right decision.
1: One of the things I, I hear a lot of people say, a lot of people, especially those in middle to senior management talk about is they want to be, the want to be the boss. They want to be the CEO. They want to be the one that has, gets that full decision-making power. And as someone who's currently been in that seat, as a co-founder who's kind of in that seat right now with the role that you play in the US, how difficult is it being a CEO?
0: So... And so far, I was never the CEO. I was a co-founder, but, but one of the other co-founders was the CEO. So I was one of the more senior people, but ultimately there was somebody else who, who had to, to make, you know, the really big decisions. And, and right now I'm the CEO of Salary Finance Inc., which is the US division of Salary Finance. Salary Finance actually originated in the UK and I'm heading up to the US franchise, effectively the US operation. So look, I think nearly every CEO has got a board to report to or someone. So, you know, nearly everyone has a boss in some way, even a CEO. I certainly do. I I think it's great, but I don't think it's for everybody. I mean, I think that if it causes you more stress than you're comfortable with, then then it's probably not the role for you. I think there are many people out there who prefer to be kind of told what to do or, or not told what to do, but to have more direction given to them and then to use their initiative and judgment to work out how to get there. But in the end, someone else is making the the kind of higher level top decision. So I'm very pleased I moved into this role. I really enjoy it, but I appreciate it's not for everybody.
1: What would you say are some of the key leadership traits that you need when you are uh, a CEO or when you're leading an organization?
0: I think there's a few things. I mean, firstly, strategy. Ultimately, where the company goes, which product lines you pursue, what kind of customer segments you're going after, you've got to have a competency for that because people are looking at you for for that kind of strategic direction. I also think you need to be really good at hiring and motivating people because ultimately one person can only do so much in a company, however great thick you are. And to build something that, that is going to last and can scale you need great people around you. So, to a large extent, my job is helping recruit people, or you know, certainly the top team. It's motivating those people during the kind of interview process to join the company, and then once they're in the company, getting the best out of them. If if I can get five percent more out of each of the senior leadership team, that's worth a whole lot. So, I think people skills, hiring skills, motivation skills, collaborative skills, tr- you know, trust. Generally, getting that that team spirit, teamwork in place, I think, is a huge thing. And, and you can be a really smart person, great strategically, but if you can't form a team around you who want to work with you and and lead the company with you, then it's almost definitely going to end in
1: failure. So how do you create that space for you then? Because if, just based on what you said right now, you're, you're building that team around you and you're pouring into them, you're motivating them, you're inspiring them, driving them forward towards that vision, how do you then get that poured back into you so you stay motivated and you stay inspired and you have that space where you can also learn and grow?
0: I think that's the tough thing. I think if you're not careful, your diary or calendar, uh, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on, gets filled up. can get filled up very quickly. And you can end up, if you're not careful, being tied up day after day, hour after hour on tactical day to day type issues. And I found this myself. Sometimes you've got to kind of look ahead at next week and look at and make sure there's enough time in there where you're not in a meeting and where you've got time to think about those more strategic things that you know you should be thinking about. Dangerous to say yes to every invite that comes along or, or because you want to spend time with your team, you want them to have time with you. But the risk is you kind of get stuck in the detail, which you know you have to do. You have to know the detail, but you can't get stuck out there. You've got to bring yourself up occasionally and make sure you're, you're looking a bit further ahead. That's not easy. That's not easy to do. But um, but that, that's one thing I'm trying to get better at. Are
1: there things outside of work that, I guess, fill you up and you try and create time to tap into so it's not just solely work focused but you're trying to get some harmony outside of work as well
0: yes definitely so in the one of the benefits i was lucky when i left so and then before i joined salary finance it was about 18 months 20 months period where i was doing as you mentioned at the beginning some advisory work but it it wasn't a full-time nine to five type job where you kind of knew on the Sunday night, what you had ahead of you for the week. And I found that really empowering in a number of ways, in that it, it made me appreciate what I enjoyed doing. And it gave me more time to do things I enjoyed doing outside of work. So music and sports and all that stuff, you know, I knew I enjoyed them, but I was able to dig in a bit more on them and realize that, yeah, these were things that, that I should be doing more of. So so now I've, I'm back in full time job and, the risk is it takes up all the hours of the day. I realise that I know there's, there are other things that I should be doing, or at least sparing some time of the day, at least the weekend, for family and for you know hobbies and stuff, and just relaxing. And I think knowing that, knowing what you enjoy, is is a really important thing.
1: It's also great to, and if I found bring it up. So it's great to hear Khalida say that. Like, I think it's important that we we model that behaviour as well. We talk about that with our staff or with our people. And it's like they need to see that element of us doing that and tapping into that world outside of work. Because like you said, if not, you just keep on going and going and going. that can just lead to you just being completely overwhelmed by the work. But actually when you can step away from that, it's quite good for you.
0: Yeah. Every, every company is different and every CEO is different. But by and large, I try and let people have their weekends. I'm not, Unless there's something really urgent, I'm not sending emails over the weekend. I might sit down and do some work, but in general, I like tee them up for Monday morning as opposed to doing them on Sunday afternoon. Because what I don't want is everyone sitting at home on a Sunday afternoon thinking there's probably two or three emails I need to go and do, and then then not being able to enjoy their weekend. And it takes a bit of discipline because sometimes there are things that I think of like I want to send, but I believe you get a better workforce for it. I believe you get people who then put the hours in Monday to Friday because they know that the weekend generally is theirs and their families. And I don't know. Maybe I'm getting old and soft. I think that that's a good thing.
1: I don't think it's old and soft. I think it's actually really, it's very, very relevant, especially right now. We've seen the way the world of work is with the changes that have happened. A lot of it brought on by the pandemic, but they've been there before as well and with the great resignation reset all the different greats it's down to people in the work environment so being able to actually create a culture where you care about your people you're on your people and they have that space to breathe it's super important to individuals so it's, it's definitely relevant
0: yeah it is and i think if you can we have a great team at salary finance and if i don't want people resigning and going elsewhere if, if they're great people so to some extent it's because it's the right thing, but it's also, it's, it's the right thing for the business because you don't people burning out, being forced to go somewhere else. So, so yeah. I mean, we work hard. We work very hard, but there's always a limit, I think.
1: Well, um, I'm going to say some of the sacrifices that you've, you've had to make on your journey to get you to where you've got to now. That's a good question. The one I've,
0: Thought about much. I mean, I guess living away from my parents and my brother and sister, and my nieces and nephews, is a tough thing. I have a great relationship with them all. Go back generally quite a few times a year and see everybody, but it's not the same. You know, I've got six nieces and nephews between four and ten, and every time I go and see them, you know, they you know, grow another inch and the rest of it. So you're not quite in their lives as much as you would be if you were living down the road. But you know, I'm not the only person to. Have moved away from their family but that's definitely one thing that you know in one sense 20 years ago i could have made the decision to work locally live locally maybe i wouldn't have done some of the interesting things that, that i've done now different interesting things but so it's a conscious decision but yeah that's probably the hardest thing i, I would say
1: do you ever look back with any regrets or anything that you do differently
0: not really i know it's a little bit cliche to say it, but i try not to regret stuff. I think you can look back and maybe realize that that wasn't the right decision. I think that's different to a regret though. I I don't know, maybe I'm playing at semantics here, but have I made wrong decisions? Definitely. Are there things that I've done that in another world I would change? Definitely. Do I regret them? I I don't know. I don't know. Everything got me to where where I am today. I'm in a good place. I'm happy with my life. I've I've had good success. So so I, I, I wouldn't say I really regret stuff. Do I continually learn? Yes. I mean, if you don't, if you get too big for your boots and lose your humility, then I think that's when you're in trouble. So yeah, I think continually learning, continually asking for feedback from your team, which can be a difficult thing because if the people that report to you, you need to empower them to give you feedback. And I, I do try and do that. I try and ask regularly, like, how am I doing? What do you think I could do more of or less of? Because if you don't ask, generally you won't get told or you'll only get told the stuff they want think you want to hear. So so yeah, there is a bit of making sure to ask for feedback. But I don't regret saying you're gonna sound like a Frank Sinatra song there, but uh <laughs> but no, I don't think I've got got many or any.
1: How do you um deal with that feedback if you get negative feedback? How does it feel taking that in?
0: Look, first of all, if you if you're asking people that work for you for feedback it's usually going to be expressed in a way that is polite and probably softens the blow so (laughs) Of course, that's different if if you're asking your boss or your, your peer or something or a customer, it might not be the same. I think it's important to listen, to not interrupt and kind of defend your patch or argue against something. And then usually, I think for me, I hear the feedback. Sometimes I might not agree 100%. In the moment, but then usually with a little bit of reflection, it's like, actually, yeah, they're probably, they're probably right. At least my natural instinct, and I think many people's natural instinct is to dispute feedback like that, you know, whereas when you think about it, you think, yeah, probably they're, they're onto something. And then I think you try and adapt uh, accordingly. I mean, it may, it doesn't mean that I listen to everything because it, not everything is going to be correct, but certainly if two or three people are saying, similar things, then I think
1: then you should listen. I really like what you said there, right? It's not everything that you take on board. I guess you need to have that filter for yourself to see what is is this really, really relevant to me? Is there something I can deal with it or is this someone else projecting onto me in using the feedback as the way of doing that? Like you said, if you try and take on everything, you end up just doing things that are not completely unnatural to you. Completely changing and that's not what you want to do. That's not the whole point of feedback, is it?
0: But you should give feedback. I mean I I can remember literal occasions where people have given me feedback 20 years ago diff- different like prior bosses i can it still rings in my ears and maybe you take those things in too much that you know maybe you, you hear the kind of more critiquey feedback more than the crazy feedback but i think it's important to give it and i think it's important to receive it otherwise you're not aware of what you're not aware of you, you need to ask otherwise you just don't know <laughs>
1: With salary finance, you're focusing uh it's interesting part of the market. I find interesting anyway, because it's about employee well-being. Yep. I'm just curious, around what's the the link between finances and employee well-being? Can you break that down a little bit more.
0: Yeah, it's actually so. So the, the story of how I ended up at salary finance kind of goes back to my SoFi days, where I looked after business development, and SoFi was trying to get people certainly in its early years, to apply for student loan refinancing. And it was taking people who were currently paying rates of 7 or 8% and giving them a loan that was at 3 or 4%. And they would say, in many cases, tens of thousands of dollars, given the size of the loans that they were refinancing. What we quickly worked out was that lots of our customers or members, as we called them, actually worked for the same kinds of companies, the big companies across the U.S. We worked out, well, okay, let's go to those employers, to those companies, and say to them, you know, that's a real example. So we'd go to someone uh, like McKinsey. McKinsey's hiring lots of people straight out of school, out of university with debt. So lots of our customers at SoFi were from McKinsey. We went to McKinsey and said, we're helping a thousand of your people, but you probably have another 10,000 with student debt. Can you help get the word to them that this product is available, that it exists, and that they can potentially benefit from it? And in, in a way, that's a voluntary benefit, a voluntary employee benefit. So most employees in the US, you have healthcare coverage, healthcare insurance, you have a 401k, which is the pension kind of equivalent. And then increasingly, you have lots of these voluntary benefits, and it could be gym memberships, or it could be discounted things over here. In this case, it's access to a student loan product that can save you lots of money. And it was wildly successful. We ended up working with about 700 employers across the country who would inform their employees of this SoFi product. What it showed me was that employers have a really big place to play in the financial lives of their employees. I think traditionally, if you go back 10, 20 years, employers were of the opinion okay, we pay our people X. We give them some kind of pension or 401k, and in the US anyway, you give them healthcare insurance, but that's it. How they spend their money, how they save their money, how they invest their money outside of their pension is kind of up to them. And some employers still take that stance, but increasingly, and I think we're seeing this as the generations kind of evolve, the modern employee is very happy to be helped by their employer in matters of financial, personal finance. So if my employer can point me to a good solution or a savings account, can point me to a good mortgage that's going to save me money, can point me to a student loan solution that's going to save me money, then I'm very happy to hear that from my employer. And I think employers are very quickly realizing that employees need this information. Far too many of them are financially stressed. They're in debt. They're wasting time at work. Their productivity is suffering. There's masses of data out there that shows that people with financial problems are underperforming at work, taking more days off. Presenteeism. They're at work, but they're not really thinking about work. They're kind of trying to organize something on the side relating to their money. And most importantly for an employer, those employees are more likely to leave you because they're earning 25000 now. They're trying to look for a job that pays 26000 because they think that extra 1000 is going to help solve their problems, which it may or may not do. But in a way, it doesn't matter for the employer. The employee is more likely to leave. So the great resignation, it just builds into that. It makes your great resignation even worse because more people are leaving because they've got financial issues. So employers getting involved in the financial lives or offering help for the financial lives of their employees is a, is a massive thing now both in the uk and the us
1: that makes perfect sense and i think it's it goes back into that whole previously you had a little you, you a lot of workplaces had that separation of work and home and it was just there but like you said you can't switch off if you're thinking about i've got financial issues when you're coming to work you're thinking okay i need to do my work but that's in my mind and i need to create some time and space to be able to focus on that because that's what's more important to me. So by actually creating products that combines those two areas, you're showing that you care about your employees. and You see them more than just numbers and apparel. You see them as an individual security into account some of the stresses that they might have. So that makes, that makes perfect sense.
0: Exactly. And, and I think the pandemic has helped because it's, in many respects, blurred the line between work and home. So, you know, we're speaking to each other, now, Shopee, and, and you can see the background. I'm in my son's bedroom and doubles up as my office. And you can see the stuff around my room that give you a sense for who I am as a person. And that's the same at work now for those of us who are on Zoom calls. Our colleagues have seen our pets. They've seen our kids. They've seen our partners. They've seen our home lives. So th- there's just a more, I think people are more natural about or well, it's just easier now not to have this weird separation up. Like, you know, you have your work face and then you have your home face. And I, and I think it's in line with that. If my employer can help me to get rid of the credit card debt that I've got today, I'm all for it. Like, tell me more. So the world has changed and, and salary finance, as, a, as I mentioned, started life in the UK is now working with what are we, what, 550 plus employers across the UK and the US. So in the UK, for example, Nine of the top ten supermarkets, so Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Asda, Morrisons, etc. The Royal Mail, the police force, utility companies, British Telecom, all all these big employers they are all working or partnering with Salary Finance to offer their employees financial products that they otherwise wouldn't have access to, and that's really the beauty of the model.
1: What's the, I the feedback been like from? people who haven't ever tapped into this
0: phenomenal so if you go to our trust pilot page we've got over four thousand reviews and we're averaging 4.8 4.9 and these are people who Mm -hmm. have had a variety of events happen to them where they have either got into debt or they need to kind of get into debt and those things range from fixing their home so you know roof tile blows off and they need to fix it or a washing machine breaks down and it needs to get fixed a car breaks down, they need to get it repaired. More in the US, medical debt is, is a massive thing, even if you're insured. Suddenly, I need to come up with five grand to pay for this bill I've got. Legal fees, unexpected legal fees, you know, whatever it is, unexpected stuff happens. And if you don't have the savings, and unfortunately, too many people don't have the savings, then where do you go to get that money? And if you don't have something like salary finance offered by your employer, far too many people end up going to a payday lender or basically a ridiculously expensive lender. So in the US, payday lenders who all lend you amounts for short periods of time, the effective interest rates are, are three or 400%. That's not sustainable. you know. And the average person who takes one loan takes nine loans. You get stuck in this cycle of really expensive debt. So employers that realize this and offer better alternatives are helping their people in a, in a really massive way.
1: see that think Spend a lot of time talking about creating people of profit quarters. I think it's just a great example of something that organizations can do that can really, really speak to their people and show through their actions that actually care about what goes on with you as an individual. So I love that, I guess. So coming towards the end, I've got two more questions. One would be, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Well, that's a good question.
0: Uh... I don't know. I'm I'm slipping into middle age cliche here, but like trying to enjoy (laughs) it because it goes fast. I think trying not to waste too many, too much time, too many of your years on stuff you don't enjoy. That doesn't mean you should be working like a workaholic all the time to maximize your, you know, productivity and your net worth. It doesn't mean that, but doing things deliberately. If you want to, you know, go for a holiday or vacation for a week, do it, but go to a place that you want to go to, not one that that you don't want to go to. If you want to be having dinner with people and spending money on on going out for the night, that's fine. Do that, but do it with people that you want to hang out with. Don't compromise too much on that stuff because in the end you're going to look back and think, you know, why did I spend two years doing that? I really didn't enjoy it. And that's not to say you always take the easy road. Sometimes you've got to do things that may be tough or difficult or hard work to get somewhere else, but understand why you're doing something. If there is that reward there, whatever it is, okay, I can put up with a certain amount of stuff. But as soon as that reward is unclear, then make sure you enjoy it. Because if you don't enjoy it, then,
1: you know, why are you doing it? Nice. The last question will be How do you define leadership?
0: Many ways, but I think it's inspiring your team to get the best out of them. I think. If you can do that, then you've got a good chance of, of of success. You get good people around you and you can inspire them to do their best work. Then collectively you can get your company humming. So yeah, inspiring others to to do their best work, I think that's one of the key things.
1: So when I wanna say thank you, Dan, for for coming and share for sharing your experience. I think it's always it's always really I always find it intriguing. And there's so much to learn from the the journey and the path that people take to get to where they get to right now and it just goes to show like you said some of it was courage some of it was stepping outside your comfort zone knowing when to pull back and to get involved in something new and navigating that while still having family and that right next to you for me it's, it's absolutely amazing so thank you for just sharing all of that with us thank you sharpie i've enjoyed it this is everyday leadership and i'll see you next week